may be seated. Well, good morning. As always, it is a great privilege to have this opportunity to worship our God together and to preach to you from God's holy and sufficient word. Well, this morning we are beginning a four-part series through the month of December focusing on the four titles that are ascribed to the Lord Jesus in Isaiah's prophecy that we find in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And so at this time I would ask you to please turn with me to the book of Isaiah and we are going to begin by reading verse 6 of chapter 9 where we will see these four titles given. So Isaiah 9 verse 6. The word of the Lord to uh, to us says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. Well, what we plan to do over the next four weeks is to preach a message on each of these titles given to Christ. And so this week we will look at the title, Wonderful Counselor. Counselor. Next week we will look at Mighty God. The third week we will look at Everlasting Father. And on Christmas morning we will conclude by looking at the title Prince of Peace. Now if you are reading in the ESV or the New American Standard Bible or the NIV, you will notice that it gives us four titles as seen by the placement of the commas. And if you are reading out of the KJV or the New King James Version, you will notice that it places a comma between Wonderful and Counselor, thus giving five titles here as opposed to four. And so the question before us is, well, which one of these is correct? Well, uh, because December this year only has four Sundays, we decided that we would go with the version that has four titles. Now, I'm, I'm kidding about that. Of course, we do not deal with textual differences in that way. Uh, no, the reason we are... Addressing this verse in four messages is because we believe that the flow of the passage lends itself to a reading that describes four titles to the Messiah. Every translation puts mighty and God together, rendering the title mighty God. They put everlasting and father together, rendering everlasting father. And they put prince and peace together, rendering that title prince of peace. And so it is only natural that wonderful and counselor would go together to form a single title that title being Wonderful Counselor. And so that is our plan over the next four weeks, and we do pray that this Christmas season will be a blessed time for us as individuals and as a church as we focus on this great cause for praise that is our Lord's first advent. Well, I've made mention before that the Bible is what we call a meta-narrative, meaning that the Bible, all 66 books, form... One grand, that's what the word meta means, one grand or great cohesive story and that the central focus of that story is the glory of God and the salvation of his people through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what the the whole Bible is about. It's one story with this one central message. But not only is the Bible a meta narrative, meaning that it is one cohesive story, the Bible is the definite article. It is the meta narrative. Meaning that not only is the Bible a story we read, it is the story of all stories. 
Every single story comes within the context of the story of the Bible. Every single one. And so the Bible is the story of reality. And when we understand that, we come to the realization that our very lives are bound up in the story of Scripture. And this applies to every single person. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you be Christian or not. The story of Scripture is the very context of your life, both here and beyond. And so the Bible speaks of those who are wicked and those who are righteous. It speaks of the saved and of the lost. It speaks of those in Adam and those who are in Christ. It speaks of those who are on the way to heaven and those on their way to hell. And so you are in this story we call the Bible. And so that's not the question. The question is not whether or not you are in the story. The question is, where do you find yourself in the story? Are you one who is numbered among those who are in Christ, who are righteous by virtue of union with Christ, who are saved, and who are on their way to heaven? Or are you one who is an Adam, who is wicked, who is lost, and on your way to hell? And so, when we read this book, this, this book we call the Bible, we must realize that it is the very living Word of God. It's not simply a historical book. Yes, it is historical, and yes, it details historical events. And we must realize this, but we also must realize that it is much more than that. For example, when we read of the creation account in Scripture, how should we read that account? Well, we should read it understanding that this account explains the very or origin of this, this universe and this world in which we inhabit. It, it explains the very origin of where we came from. It's about us. It's not about, we're not reading about something else. We're reading about our very origin when we read the creation account. Another example, when we read the, about the fall of Adam in the garden, we should read it understanding that we are part of that story. Because the Bible teaches us that we fell in Adam, and thus we are born in our natural state as a people under the curse of sin. And so when we read about Adam falling into sin, we should, we should read it with tears in our eyes. It should cause us to weep. It should cause us to be terrified. Now we've all received terrible news in our lives at different times, I'm sure. News that caused us to feel as though a very sword had pierced our hearts. News that caused us to lose our breath and, and to be utterly devastated by the sadness of the news that we have heard. And, and we all know there's a difference when we've heard sad stories about other people and, and, and our hearts hurts for those people. But it's a whole other ball game when we hear a sad story about one of our loved ones or about our very selves. It hits us in a whole different way, Right? Well, the same is true when we read the account of Adam and Eve falling into sin. It should have that same kind of effect on us because it literally affected us. It's not, it's not just an historical account that we read about somebody else who fell into sin. When Adam fell into sin, we fell into sin. We fell under the curse of sin. And so we should read it in that way. We should understand it in that way. And at the same time, when God gives the promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would bring forth a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, we should understand that our very hope of deliverance from that curse is bound up in that promise. It's not just a promise for the good of Adam and Eve. 
That promise is for our good. And so when we read that promise, our heart should fill with hope and encouragement. And so, therefore, we are to be invested fully into the story that we call Scripture. And really, as we read the Old Testament, it is as if we should be reading it on the edge of our seats, realizing that our only hope is in that promised one who would come. And when you understand that, then you begin to realize how amazing the Old Testament is. It really is a story of mind-blowing suspense. It really is a roller coaster ride of a story. It is a story that brings you to the brink of despair and hopelessness time and time again. And yet, every single time that it looks like all is lost, we see our faithful, covenant-keeping God showing up and intervening and thus reviving the hope of His people by reminding them once again that there is a coming Savior. And so just like when you watch a movie that's suspenseful, right? It's, we kind of get caught up in it. But we, we all, the whole time we're watching that movie, we realize that it's, we're not really in the story. That it's, it's another story. And usually it's a fictional story. And even in that, we can get caught up in the suspense, right? But how much more suspenseful should it be when we read a story that's about us? We're not just reading a story about other people here. The story is about us. And we should read it in that way. And so this is the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament traces the line of the promised Messiah and we see time and time again how close this line came to ending. And each time the line of Christ is threatened, it should cause our hearts to stop, as it were, in fear, realizing that our very lives and our very eternity is bound up with the outcome of these Bible stories that we read. Now, if you're a parent and you're reading Bible stories to your children, that that should affect the way you read the Bible to your children. It shouldn't just be you're reading historical stories to your children that teach good little moral principles. That's not the way that we should teach our children to read the Bible. We should teach our children to read the Bible understanding that these stories are about them and their very future, their very eternity is bound up in the outcome of those stories. And so if God doesn't come through in those stories, they're lost and they have no hope. And so they should understand and learn to read the Bible in that way. And we also should read the Bible in that way. Think, for example, almost all the way back to the beginning in the time of Noah, when God destroyed the earth by a flood and he destroyed all human life except for eight people. Now, talk about it all almost coming to an end right there, right? Everybody's wiped out except for eight people. We should read that being, oh my goodness. Because if they don't make it, we're lost. Think back to when Abram lied to save himself by saying that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. And how were it not for the intervention of the Lord, the line would have ended right then. Think about the different patriarchs and how it was obvious that God was preserving His promise despite the actions of these patriarchs. Think about how God's people ended up in Egyptian slavery for 400 years and later wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and that entire generation except for two perished. And then later we see that as a result of Israel's continued rebellion and sin, it ended up causing the nation of Israel to be divided up into two kingdoms, one in the north and one in the south. 
And that eventually the rebellion of the people of God ultimately led to them being taken away into exile by the Assyrians, and who were then later conquered by the Babylonians, and then those were later conquered by the Persians. And so, brothers and sisters, it is, it is with this impending darkness and dread of the nation of Israel being exiled into a pagan empire that we, that we see our passage this morning. And so as we come to Isaiah 9 this morning, that, that's, that's where we're at in this story. That's where we're at in this meta narrative. The nation of Israel has so sinned that God was about to send them into exile. And so we should be reading Isaiah with this sense of darkness and, and dread in our hearts about, about what God is about to do. And if you didn't know what came after Isaiah, if you didn't know what, what we found in the New Testament, as you're reading through the book of Isaiah, you would be brought literally to the brink of despair. Because you realize that God's, God's done with the sin, sin of His people. He is sending them into exile. He is, he is going to, to judge them and to destroy them. And so that's the context in which we find our passage this morning. So if you would, please notice with me in Isaiah... And we will begin our reading in chapter 8, verse 19, and we'll read through the end of that chapter. So we begin in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. And I want you to notice the, the hopelessness of this situation. It says, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums, and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Let's pray. Father, as we have read the history of your dealings with your people, we are reminded once again that we stand in need of your grace. Time and time again, when all seem lost, you have remembered your covenant with your people. Lord, we stand this morning in need of you to remember your covenant of grace with your people. Lord, we are sinners, and we live in the midst of a nation of sinners. And we cry out, woe is me. Lord, remind us once again of your grace. Remind us once again of our need for Christ. And Lord, I do pray that you would cause our hearts to rejoice this morning in the reality that you did send your Son. That you have so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son so that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray that we would believe in your Son this morning. And if there are those that don't know him this morning, that they may come to him in faith for the first time today. And for those of us who do know Christ, that we would behold Him this morning once again with the eyes of faith, and that we may worship Him with humble and rejoicing hearts. 
And I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have read of the utterly hopeless and dark situation of the people of God that they have found themselves in at the end of chapter 8 in the book of Isaiah. And so the people of God are on the brink of being brought into exile or into captivity. Now, I want to survey a few hints that Isaiah gives to us in the preceding chapters that point us to the cause of this awful and dark condition. And as we do so, I want you to see how many of the issues we read in Isaiah's indictment on the nation are really timeless issues that affect every generation of people who have walked on this planet because, as we will see, the issues of Isaiah's time are the issues that result from sin, and sin affects every generation. So if you would please notice with me first in chapter 3 of Isaiah, and notice verse number 6. Isaiah 3, 6 reads, For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruin shall be under your rule. And so we see that this time period is marked by a lack of leadership. In fact, the standard or the bar that was set for a position of leadership was as low as someone who simply had a cloak. That, that was the bar of leadership in this time period. If you would look back in chapter 3 and notice verse 4, where the Lord states, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And if you would look down to verse 12 of chapter 3, where we see the result of this poor leadership. He says, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. And so we see that there is a crisis in leadership during this time. But this time is also marked by a rampant materialism. If you would notice over in chapter 2 of Isaiah and notice verses 7 and 8. Here we read, Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And we see this same idea conveyed and reinforced over in chapter 5, if you flip over a couple pages to chapter 5, and notice verses 8 and 9. Here we read, Woe to those who join house to house and who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. And have we not seen this, this very thing time and time again throughout human history? Different societies give themselves to material possessions only to find that in time their wealth disappears and their houses are left to rot. And so in every case, this idolizing of wealth and material possessions always leads to ruin in a people. And so we see here that Israel is marked by a crisis in leadership and they are marked by rampant materialism. Next, we see the great sin of drunkenness or 
excess in the use of substances. If you would notice in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink. They tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. And so surely we see that a wicked generation is marked by the pursuit of false joy through becoming intoxicated. And surely if you have lived any amount of time and have have any amount of interaction with the majority of people in our culture, you will see that this culture is a culture of chasing after a good time. This drives a, a countless multitude of people in our culture. And it is clear that these same people have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, nor do they see the work of His hands. We see that in our culture today. Well, the culture in Israel at the time of Isaiah was the same way. They were a people who were, who were driven by this pursuit of a good time through intoxication. Next, we see the sin of sexual immorality as characterized by the, by the society's women and the way that they carry themselves. Notice chapter 3, verse number 16. This verse reads, The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. It's almost as if Isaiah is writing as one who is giving social commentary on the 21st century. But in reality, he is describing 8th century B.C. Israel. And so this time is marked by sexual immorality and a lack of modesty in the women. And not to just indict the women, this of course reflects directly on the men of that culture, because in every case of, of, a, of a society that is marked by sexual promiscuity and a lack of modesty in women, you always have men who are the consumers, those who desire and indulge in that sort of behavior in the women. Next, we see that this time period is marked by a fascination with superstition and a searching out for false religions or false counselors who, of course, offer no true wisdom. If you would notice in chapter 2, verse 6. There it states, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because... They are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And so they are full of these these superstitious things from the east, from these eastern religions, these pagan religions. And if you would notice over in chapter 8, back to where we started, and notice verse 19. It reads, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, and of course necromancers there is speaking of those who, who seek to communicate with the dead, those who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And so we see that the nation of Israel had so degenerated as a culture that they were now a people who looked to foolish superstitions as a means of obtaining wisdom. 
Now, why is that such a shocking reality? We, we see the shock in, in Isaiah as he reads this or as he prophesies this. We see the Lord's anger and Isaiah's shock in that as the people are seeking mediums and necromancers, they are doing so in the context of being a people who have the very oracles of God. They are doing so as a people who have the word of God given to them in their own language. They are doing so as the very people that God has given his law and his covenant promises to in writing. You notice, you see that in verse 19 and, in verse 19 and 20. So they're seeking out these mediums and necromancers. Why should they do that when, why don't they just inquire of their God? If they, if they need wisdom, that's the question being asked here. Why are they seeking out mediums and necromancers? Why don't they just inquire of their God? Why are they, it says, why are they inquiring of the dead on behalf of the living when they have the teaching and the testimonies of the Lord? Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, it reads, and this is the heritage of these people. There it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And so these people, the very people that were brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or at least they were supposed to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, these are the people that are now turning to mediums and necromancers to seek wisdom. And so in a lot of this, we can clearly see that surely that the reason for this is because the people have no dawn or no light, as it tells us in verse 20. They are a people who are walking in darkness and they are about to be thrust into even greater darkness as a result of their sin. They're doing the very thing that Psalm 1 warns against. Remember in Psalm 1 where it says, Blessed is the man who does what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And yet we see clearly that the people of Israel were walking in the counsel of the wicked and not according to the counsel of God. And so with this being the condition of the people of God, we can, we can understand something of the ministry that was given to Isaiah. Now we know back in Isaiah chapter 6 that, that God did a marvelous work of grace in Isaiah's life where he revealed to Isaiah his holiness. And as a result of this, Isaiah saw how wicked he was and how much in need he was of the mercy of God. And then in the context of this, Isaiah was assured that his guilt was taken away and his sin atoned for. Now, I must pause here and ask you this question. Have you... We're about to read of Isaiah coming to the grips with this. But have you come to grips with the reality that you fall short of the glory of God? That God is absolutely holy and you are not. And because of that, you stand in need of the grace of God. And further, have you been shown that the way of mercy, that the way of mercy through the person and work of Christ is the only way that there is? 
There's only one way to receive mercy from the Lord. And have you been assured by God that your guilt is taken away and that your sin has been atoned for? Again, we're reading about Isaiah experiencing this. But again, how do we read the Bible? Not just reading about other people, right? We must ask ourselves the question, have we experienced the same thing that Isaiah has experienced? Have we seen our need for the grace of God? And have we been assured that our guilt is taken away and that our sin is atoned for? If not, then I plead with you to make haste today to flee to Christ, for He is your only hope of salvation. In case you're not aware, you are not good enough to be made right with God. And if you try to be made right with God based on your own merit, you will perish. But if you come to God through Christ, your guilt and your sin will be put away and you will be made just in the eyes of God. Which is a remarkable statement because we read in Isaiah 6 that this God is a God who is holy, holy, holy. And so for us to be made just in the sight of that God is, is a miracle beyond what our minds can comprehend. Now if you would notice with me in Isaiah chapter 6, and let's read together verses 5 through 7. Isaiah says, And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then notice verse number 8. And I, heard the ver- and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And so, no doubt what happened in Isaiah verse 7 was the catalyst for his response in verse number 8. It was, a, it was from a heart that was overwhelmed with gratitude and love for God that was then rightly prepared to serve God. So, it is important that you remember this principle. In the Scripture, the order is always the indicative first and then the imperative. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. It's not the one who loves much is then forgiven because he loved much. That's, that's, that's a backward way of looking at it. The Scripture always teaches us that we are first reconciled to God by the grace of God. We are forgiven much and because of that, we then love much. And so it is the heart that is rested in the finished work of Christ as the grounds of justification. That is the only heart that is prepared to serve God from a right motive. And so if you find this morning that your commitment to serving God has been lacking, the way that you deal with that is not that you just get more determined to serve God. No, if you would be fitted with the proper motivation to serve God, then remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of what God has done to reconcile you to Himself through Christ. Drink deeply at the well of God's grace in the gospel, which is supplied to you through the ordinary means of grace. This and this alone will will propel you to God-honoring service. 
Now, what was the ministry that was given to Isaiah? Well, it was a ministry that many of us would not volunteer for. It was a ministry of judgment. And we see this laid out for us in what God tells Isaiah to say to the people in verses 9 through 13 of Isaiah chapter 6. So if you would notice with me this passage. And God said, Go and say this, go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then Isaiah, in response to that, says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? How long must I engage in this ministry of judgment to the people? And God said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. Speaking of the exile. And the forsaking places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so, it is against this dark backdrop of the sins of Israel against God and the dark backdrop of Isaiah's ministry of judgment where God says that he will bring his destruction and desolation and that the people of God will be removed far away, no doubt referring to the impending exile that will happen first in the northern kingdom and then later in the southern kingdom. So it's against this, this dark, dark backdrop of the sins of God's people and of God's impending judgment on his people it's against that dark backdrop that we begin to see pictures of what God will do to save His people from their sins, just as He saved Isaiah from his. We see a picture of this in Isaiah 7, in verse 14, where there the Lord says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And so we have that, that beautiful glimmer of hope in chapter 7. And then, of course, we have this beautiful picture of hope that is found for us in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. And we will spend the remainder of our time focusing here on this particular passage. Now, I want to draw out three truths from this passage concerning the promised Messiah and then close with an encouragement to look to Christ as our wonderful Counselor. And so the first truth that we see from this passage, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, is that the promised one would come into a land of darkness bringing light. I want to begin by reading in chapter 8, verse 22, and then move through the first couple verses of chapter 9. And I want you to see, I want you to see the stark contrast that we see between 8.22 and 9.1. So beginning in 8.22 it reads, And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But, verse 1 of chapter 9, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Now, what is interesting about these verses are, I think, a couple of things. First, notice how verses 1 and 2 speak about this light in the past tense. It says they they have seen this light. This light has shone on them. So it's speaking of it in in the past tense as if it has already happened, as if it's already a present reality in the nation of Israel. Now we know that Isaiah is prophesying concerning the impending exile of God's people, that it is going to be a time of great darkness. And yet, here he is speaking as if the light that the people of God need has already appeared. And so that's interesting, that he's speaking about this great darkness that will come, and this darkness has already began to take place, and it's, just, it's going to get worse. And so this, this great, thick darkness is still a future event in the people of Israel. And what they need is light. They are people who have no dawn, and they need this great light from God. And yet he speaks here as if this light has already come. And so it's a little bit confusing as you read through. And so, but what we see here is this. It is as if the fact that this light will come is so sure in the mind of Isaiah, it is as if it has already come. It's similar to what what Paul does in the golden chain of salvation found in Romans chapter 8. Of course, there we, we know, he says... To those whom He has predestined, past tense, He has also called, and those whom He has called, He has also justified, and those whom He has justified, He has also glorified. So He uses the term glorified in the past tense in in Romans chapter 8. Now we know that glorification hasn't happened yet. Glorification takes place at the second coming of Christ. Glorification takes place at the resurrection. And so right now there's only one who has been glorified. That is Christ. Those who are in heaven, they're not glorified yet. They're in the intermediate state. They're they're awaiting their glorification. And yet Paul speaks of glorification in the past tense. And so basically what what it's teaching us is this. That our salvation, our glorification is so sure because of the finished work of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ's work that it is as if this glorification has already happened. And so that's kind of what we see here in in, um, Isaiah chapter 9. We see that the promise of the coming Messiah is a sure reality. It hasn't happened yet, but Isaiah is so sure that it will happen that he speaks of it as if it's in the past tense. Further, in these two verses, Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2, we see something of a theme that is used over and over again in the meta-narrative of Scripture. And that theme being that God often brings hope and salvation from the most unlikely of places. Notice verse 1 of chapter 9. There it is mentioned that in the former time, which is really still the current time and even in the future, at the time of the writing of this prophecy, that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali were brought into contempt, it says. Now why were these regions brought into contempt? Well, quite simply... The reason they were brought into contempt was because of their geographical location. They were located in the north, and because of this, 
These regions were the first to suffer from the, from the Assyrian invasions. So these, these, these lands, these regions in the north of Israel were the first to experience the wrath of the, this conquering nation, uh, Assyria. Now, what is meant by these regions in latter times being made glorious? So it says in former times, these, these regions would be brought into contempt, and in latter times they would be made glorious. Well, if you would, turn over to the book of Matthew and notice chapter 4 of Matthew. We're going to read together verses 12 through 16. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 16. And keep in your mind what we've just read in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Beginning in verse 12, it reads, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, uh, Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of where? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for, their dwe- and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so in the former times, these regions were held in contempt because these were the regions that first faced the wrath of God's judgment. But in the latter times, it is from these regions that the promised Messiah would come. And so it is from these regions that the light of the world has shone. And so the first truth from our passage is that the promised Messiah will enter into a dark world bringing light. And this is the very truth of the gospel, brothers and sisters. In a general way, it is true that Jesus is the light and that wicked men reject the light because they love the darkness. But in a specific way, Jesus is the light in the sense that not only is He the light, but He opens blind eyes to be able to behold the light. Each and every one of you in this room today that are Christians are, Christ- are Christians precisely because God did a work in your heart whereby you were made able to see Christ and to come to Christ. So Christ being the light of the world as glorious as that is, all that will lead to is your, is your condemnation apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that makes you able to see the light as it truly is and come to it realizing that He is the only hope of salvation and that He is worthy to be worshipped and worthy to be followed. And so may we thank God for the light of life that is shown in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 reads as follows. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so it is in the face of Jesus that we have the very light that leads to life. And so if you are a Christian, if you would have light, then gaze at the glory of Christ as revealed in the Word of God. And if you are not a Christian, and you would have light, then seek to see the face of Christ as it is revealed in the Gospel. So that's the first truth that we see from this passage. And now, uh, let's look at a second truth in this passage that we find in verses 3-5. through 5. 
And this truth is that the promised Messiah brings deliverance to His people who are in bondage. So let's read together verses 3 through 5. He says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So why, why is the, the people of God, why are they increasing? Why is the nation increasing? Why are they, why are they joyful? Why? Verse 4. For the yoke of His burden, that is, our oppressors, for the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior is a battle in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now these, thir- these verses, verses 3 through 5, I think teach us two great lessons. First, in these verses we clearly see the concept that Christ brings salvation by way of delivering us from our enemies. And so throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, we see salvation pictured as God delivering His people out of the hands of their enemies. We see this in uh, the Exodus account and God delivering His people from the Egyptians. We see this in the, in the deliverance of His people from exile with the Assyrian and Babylon empires being overthrown. And this And this theme, this concept is so pervasive throughout Scripture that when we get to the book of Revelation, we see that the deliverance of God's people is pictured as the destruction of Babylon the Great. And so this concept no doubt points us to the reality that what the Messiah accomplishes for His people is ultimately far greater than deliverance from physical enemies. And so... Salvation is pictured time and time again throughout the Old Testament as, as physical deliverance. But that, that's the use of typology. It's, all, it's, pointing forward, it's pointing us forward to a greater deliverance. A deliverance from spiritual enemies. And so we see that Christ saves us by delivering us from our great enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And so it is through what Christ accomplished in His perfect life and sacrificial death that frees us from the bondage of sin the dominion of Satan, and the fear of death. So that's the first great lesson we see in verses 3 through 5. And the second great lesson we learn from these verses is the principle that God saves His people in a way that is foolish to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. You would notice verse 4. Here we read that Christ will break the rod of the oppressor in a similar way as God destroyed Midian. Now, of course, we remember the story of Midian, right? That's recorded for us in Judges chapter 8 and how Gideon and his 300 men defeated the far larger and stronger forces of the Midianites. Now, how did he do that? How did, how did Gideon and, the, and his 300 men defeat this vast army? Was it because they had superior military might? No. Was it because they were smarter? No. If you remember, what they did was they blew trumpets and they broke jars that had torches inside of them. And when they did this, they yelled, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And when they did this, God gave the Midianites into the hand of Israel, and they defeated Midian. So, we see very clearly here that the way in which God delivered His people from the Midianites was it was the strong arm of God that delivered them. And it came through a way that seemed weak, through a bunch of men holding 
glass jars with torches in them, breaking the torches and, and yelling a statement. Seems foolish, seems weak. Well, in much the same way, the way that Christ would deliver his people by destroying their enemies came in a way of weakness. And that is what the, that, that's what makes the story of Christmas such a remarkable story. You would think that the way in which the promised Messiah would come to destroy the enemies of his people and thus set his people free, would that he would come in great power and strength. But rather, Christ came by way of condescending to take on the weakness of human, of human flesh. He came as a babe. It says in verse 6, For to us a child is born. And so this is the wonder of the Incarnation. Christ came to set His people free by humbling Himself and taking the form of a servant. Christ came to save us through weakness and suffering. And we see this worked out for us more clearly later on in Isaiah when we get to the servant songs. Particularly in Isaiah 53 where we read that the Messiah came to deliver His people by suffering in their place. And so this is the shock and the scandal of the Gospel and the shock of the message of Christmas. That God came to save not in the way that we think He would come to save. He came to save by sending His Son born of a woman, born under the law. And that His Son would live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death in our place in order to deliver us from our great enemies. And so, brothers and sisters, may we glory in the humility and the love of our Savior who willingly came to suffer and to die so that we might be saved from our enemies. Now, a third truth that we see in this passage, that we find in verses 6 through 7, is that the promised one will establish his kingdom. Verses 6 and 7 read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so here we see that this promised Messiah will come not just as a suffering servant but also as a conquering king. Yes, his heel will be bruised but in the process he would crush the head of Satan. Yes, the nations will rage against God's anointed, but He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them like a potter's vessel. And so we see that this coming one will sit on David's throne and thus fulfill the covenant promises that God made to David. And so even now, as we are gathered in this room together, we are proof positive that Christ is King. He is building His kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and He has established us as a holy nation, thereby showing and proving that He in fact is King. And I love the end of verse 7. Because there it shows us how and why this took place. The reason all of this takes place is because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God has made a covenant promise. He has entered into that covenant freely, not under compulsion. And so He's made this covenant and He will bring it to completion. 
He will save His people. He has given to His people a Son. His Son will come and save them and raise every single one of them up on the last day. And we have sure confidence in this because the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. He will accomplish this. And so we have great cause to worship our King this morning because He has brought light into our dark hearts. He has delivered us from our enemies through His humiliation. And in His exaltation, He has been coronated as King and has made us royal subjects and vice-regents in His kingdom. And so we have great cause to worship our King this morning. And now in conclusion, I want to mention what a great privilege it is to have Christ as our wonderful Counselor. First, the word wonderful in this context refers to the reality that Christ is divine or He is supernatural. That's what the word wonderful means in this context. It's saying that, that, this, that this child that is born is one who is divine, one who is supernatural. It is one who is God. And so our counselor is one who is nothing less than God in all His fullness. And because Christ is fully God, He has all wisdom. In fact, you could say that Christ is wisdom personified. And so our counselor is the all-wise counselor. And next, He is our counselor. And that is a privilege that is, that is unspeakably, unspeakably great. Not only is this wonderful counselor just a wonderful counselor. Again, how do we read the scriptures? He's our wonderful counselor. Now, I know all of us have been through difficult times in life and we, have, and we may have found help by talking with a counselor. Um, let me rephrase that. All of us have been through difficult times and we have all found help by speaking with a counselor. And not, and not just a, quote, professional counselor. We are, as the people of God, we are surrounded by a multitude of counselors. And the Word of God tells us that there is a, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Your spouse, your parents, your godly friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ and the church, your pastors, are all counselors that you should be regularly using in your life. In fact, I would argue that every Sunday, as we gather together, as you love each other, as you bear one another's burdens, as you encourage one another, as you exhort one another, and as you pray for one another, you are doing the very work of counseling one another. That's what counseling is, by the way. And, and that's what we do as a body of Christ. As we love each other, we counsel one another. Further, whether you, I don't know if you realize this or not, but every single week, you get a free counseling session. Every sermon is a counseling session. In fact, the pastor's primary work of counseling is done from the pulpit week in and week out. And if, if we as brothers and sisters, if we love and serve one another properly, and as the Word of God is preached properly from the pulpit, what is actually taking place is far greater than us just serving each other or just a man speaking to you. It's far greater than that because what is actually happening is that the wonderful counselor himself is counseling us. 
When the Word of God is preached properly, it is as if Christ Himself is speaking. When you love one another properly, it is as if Christ is loving the person that you're loving. Do you understand that? And so our wonderful counselor counsels us every week through the ordinary means of grace. And so at the foundation of all of this is the reality that Christ is ultimately our wonderful counselor and what a counselor he is. There is no one who is both all-wise and yet able to sympathize with our weaknesses like Christ. He is able to help us in our time of need. And I want to close with this. Remember the words of God the Father when He spoke of His Son at the Mount of Transfiguration. And there He said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And He said, Listen, to him. And so, brothers and sisters, would you obey the Father? Then listen to the counsel of his Son, who is qualified, fully qualified to be our wonderful counselor. And now, listen to the Son. He says to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Our Father and our most gracious God, we do thank you so much for this reality that you have given Christ to be our wonderful counselor. And Father, we, like Isaiah, realize that we are a sinful people who dwell in the midst of a sinful people and that we are a people who walk in a dark world, a world that is cursed by sin. But yet, Father, you have sent the very light that we need you have sent the very light of life, of life in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and Father, you have done even more than that because you have shown the very light of Christ into our very hearts if we are Christians. You have made us aware of who Christ is and what He has done for us. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are Christians, that we, would, that we would be equipped and fitted and made able to even more understand and comprehend and, and to rest and, and rejoice in the glory of what Christ has done. And if there be any who is not a Christian, I do pray that this very day that you would shine the light of Christ into their hearts. And they would see Him and turn to Him in repentance and faith. And they would walk all the days of their life with Christ as their wonderful counselor. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would at this time, please stand. And we will sing together hymn number 256, Who is He in Yonder Stall?